Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, I'm Deb Radcliffe, host of SciBeat. Cyber war versus electronic warfare. Both scenarios are included in my Breaking Backbones hacker trilogy, which starts with a drone war, including kamikaze drones, and ends with an attack on the critical infrastructure of a heavily populated geographic region, actually several regions in the US, China, and France. When I was editing my book, I needed help distinguishing between these warfare types during my uh, during the process. So I turned to Mark Sachs, who is our guest on this episode. He's the first actual cyber warrior I met back in the late 90s when I was still relatively new to the cybercrime beat. At the time, he was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army, focused on computer network operations and cyber defense. After many distinguished roles at the White House National Security Council, Verizon, NERC, SRI, and elsewhere, Mark is now Deputy Director of Research at the McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security, and I'm honored to be in his circle. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Deb. Thank you. Great to see you again. You too. We go back so far. As I recall, we met around 1998, and that was after you were appointed by the Secretary of Defense to serve uh, with the Defense Department's Joint Task Force for Computer Network Defense uh, to defend the DOD's computer network from foreign intrusions. I believe we met at a restaurant outside of Bethesda, but I'm not sure where that was. And I think that was near your office at DOD. Do you recall you know, <clears throat> I've tried to, to remember where that restaurant was, and it, it was definitely in Bethesda. It's probably long gone <clears throat> because of all the new construction there and things that have happened over the last 25 years. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Our office was down in Virginia, real close to the Pentagon. But we did have people up there in the Bethesda area. And of course, in the D.C. region, you just hop on Metro and it was just, you know, few metro stops away so very easy to get to but yeah i do finally remember that that first gathering up there and who knows it might have been a hamburger joint could have been a chinese restaurant now i remember <laughs> or anything itself. in between right i think it was sort of a coffee shop and i remember it had a big parking lot and i remember there wasn't anything around it like it was next to a, a highway yeah, I believe you're correct. The, the main road that goes through Bethesda, it's a four-lane road, you know, with buildings on both sides. And my memory also says there might have been a McDonald's or something like across the parking lot from it. But anyway, not important. I think we had a lot of fun there and talked about a lot of good things and began changing the world, as they like to say, in terms of cyberspace. Right. And um, in fact, we did discuss cyber warfare back then. Um, and it brings me to uh, where we are today. I just sit back there and I think about 
we were talking about stuff sort of hypothetically and things have way surpassed today where we were talking. Um, it felt like we were harbingers back then. We were reporting on novel risks that are actually common today. And um, in that particular interview, uh, the article that published in Computer World was called The Info Warrior because I was pretty excited to meet a real cyber warrior. But now in this episode, we're distinguishing the difference between cyber war and info warrior because as the landscape has evolved, I see what you were doing more as a cyber warrior and a cyber defender for DOD networks back then versus an info warrior, which I'm going to be covering in another episode later with Win Shortoff, father of InfoWar. Um, so in this case, the cyber war aspects that we were talking about um, were very interesting. Do you recall sort of what was going on at the Pentagon and DOD back then in terms of network defense and protection and potential cyber war activities? Yeah, I tell, there's a few stories I can tell you real briefly. I think the Info Warrior name, and you're correct in mentioning when that was uh, his world. He had created uh, InfoWarCon and had written some books about it. So in the late 90s, we were not really using the word cybersecurity, cyberspace, cyber warfare the same way we do today. It was more about information assurance, um, secrecy online. We had some other words we were using. So information warfare was a very popular buzzword. And we weren't really thinking about it so much as the internet, as it was the fact that we could influence what people were thinking, because we knew even in the 90s, there was this growing attachment to computers and computer systems and trusting what your computer had. And so if I could get inside your computer, I could change the information and therefore change your mind about things. And what we see today, largely with the criminal hacking, the financial side of computer security, we didn't really see a lot of that in the 90s. There, there had been some cases, 1994, for example, the Russian or a Russian group broke into a bank. Uh, I think it was a $10 million heist, roughly. That's one of the first episodes of cybercrime that's similar to today. But that wasn't the big game back in the 1990s. That was the era when a lot of these hacking groups and hacking clubs were coming of age. It's when DEF CON and Black Hat were getting started. And there was kind of a cowboy free spirit to the to the world of cybersecurity then, if you recall those early DEF CONs. Oh, yeah, I love that. They made great yeah. stories. I mean, absolutely. Wow. And, and it really was about the technology. You know, could I find ways? And the, the target, of course, was Microsoft because everybody was using uh, Windows 95 and then Windows 98 and Windows 2000. They all had the stack, the TCP IP stack, and the, the earlier versions of Windows didn't have. And there had been warnings even in those days. You start connecting all these consumer computers to the internet, that bad things would happen. And it didn't take long for the, the subcultures to find those things. So that became the attention of the Defense Department in the late 90s as well and concern that something might happen here, but not a real understanding because in those days, there was a deep divide between the people who protected the networks, mostly the system administrators, and those who were using exploitation for intelligence purposes, like what NSA would do. And they didn't really talk to each other. So the, the system administrators and the network operators and defenders were not very aware of what you could do to a network, how you could exploit it, how you could break into somebody else's site. It was all deeply classified. 
Well, that began to change in the November of 1998. And if you remember your history, back in those days, we had a northern no-fly zone and a southern no-fly zone for Iraq. And we had, and this came out of the first Gulf War in the early 90s. And we had told them that you have to stay within those parallels and we won't do anything bad. You fly a jet or you go across the northern uh, boundary or across the southern boundary, we'll do harm to you. And so the Air Force was routinely sending in Tomahawk land missiles, T-LAMs, or doing other things upon Baghdad, you know, in, in a kinetic sense. Yes. In February of 98, a bunch of Air Force networks uh, were intruded into, and they found you know, unauthorized access in a bunch of places within the Air Force. They began investigating, and uh, NSA, FBI, and others, uh, Air Force Office of uh, Special Investigations, Air Force OSI, they're involved in it. Then in those initial hours and first day or so, indications were very clear that this was coming from Iraq, coming from Baghdad. And there was a lot of fear that, oh my gosh, we, we have just crossed a boundary here. We're now into information warfare where the our adversaries are going to break into our networks. They can't send missiles into Washington like we can send into Baghdad, but they can certainly send cyber missiles into our systems. So there was a lot of concern about what this meant and what was mm -hmm. the, the future of information warfare, but within a few more days, the investigators determined it was two teenagers in California. Was that they part were... of Cliff Stoll's Cuckoo's Egg? No, that was an earlier thing. That Cuckoo's Egg happened about 10 years earlier. That was back okay. in the late 80s. Okay. A completely another you know, foundational story to, to what gets us to where we are today. Okay. This event in, in early 98 was known as Solar Sunrise. And oh, it that's really right. Happened. I remember that. Right. It got DOD's attention. Because not only did we think it was the Iraqis doing it, but then we find out it's teenagers who are acting like Iraq. And we were very close to doing more kinetic damage to Baghdad in response to what we thought was a cyber attack, only to find out it wasn't them after all. That was that was a pretty you know tough lesson for DOD to realize is that our, our enemies in cyberspace are not always who we think they are. They right. don't wear uniforms. There's no clear boundaries. We could be fighting a teenager with one mouse, and we're finding and we're fighting a trained intelligence expert with another mouse. You know, <laughs> and that's what that takes us to the days of learning about attribution. And I remember writing stories about hacking back, but you can't actually get to uh, unequivocal attribution. That's back right. Then. And so the idea of hacking back, which you said actually happened is dangerous on so many levels. Not only that, if they're directing it through multiple hops, you could be hacking all kinds of innocent victims along the way. So I remember writing a story about that for Network World. The interesting thing about the intrusion into DOD networks is that's how one of my key characters comes about in my cyber thriller book, Dark Angel. He was Leonard Smith. He was in the DOD networks. Uh, setting winning bids for his clients uh, for government contracts. And the key character, Cindy Frank, who becomes Psy later, finds him in the network and has to become his babysitter later when the NSA turns him to work in China and spy in China because he had a business there running uh, security for China Telecom. So it's an interesting um, parallel to what was happening in the 90s to what I put in my cyber thriller book based on my experiences and what I learned learned back then from people like you. 
Well, um, and in fact, even in those days, because we didn't quite know what we were doing, there was no uh, rules of the road per se, no mm-hmm. rules of engagement, the military term or ROE. Uh-huh. We we as so so just to wrap up that story that the Pentagon decided that we had to do something. So the Secretary of Defense uh, directed the creation of a joint task force, and about a dozen of us from around the DoD were summoned to Washington. And so I was li- living in Texas at the time, packed up the family, moved to Washington. And at the end of 98, we launched this joint task force, uh, which today is known as Cyber Command. 20 plus years later, uh, that's that's what it grew into. But back in those early days, it was only a dozen or so that we were beginning to think about how to fight this problem. But early on, we recognized, similar to what you're talking about in your book, we had friends on the dark side People that you would think of as criminals that are out hacking and breaking into others, but they're Americans. And we began to find out, okay, if we've got Americans, could we talk them into not hacking U.S. government networks? And if they just bound to determine to hack somebody, go do it offshore, go do do it elsewhere. (laughs) Uh, And by the way, if you see somebody in your little hacking world, that's trying to break into U.S. networks, could you call us? <laughs> could you let us know? <laughs> now, this really bothered a lot of our intelligence forces because they thought they had full control over it. But here you've got this joint task force that's really made up of non-intelligence people that are trying to essentially do the job they were doing. So there was a lot of a lot of collision in those days as to whose who's lane in the road is this? Who is supposed to be doing these things? But remarkably, we made a lot of friends that were over on the criminal side that could inform us because they had the connections and it became a new form of intelligence that we use today all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, open source intelligence, working with asset owners and operators, working with the general public, you know, working with others for the mutual defense of the country's networks. So we were well ahead of our time back in those days. And, you know, three years into it, we had September 11th, which was very surprising that that the terrorist groups hit our country with a physical attack because we thought it, the next big attack on America would be a cyber attack. And fortunately, we've not had that big cyber attack, uh, not not on the scale of September 11th. You know, there's there's certainly been the criminal problems that we're having today with ransomware and shutting down hospitals and things like that, but but nothing on the scale of what we thought could happen where entire power grids might be shut down Entire air traffic control systems brought to their knees, you know, banking systems stopped for weeks at a time. That fortunately has not materialized. So either Would either we're doing something that, really good or the bad guys haven't figured it out yet. One of the other, right? And that spills into what I consider cyber war versus information warfare. Uh, breaking into systems, affecting power grids. I know we had a scare with the water company in New York where it almost got over-poisoned with too much chlorine. Um, So we've had a couple of harbingers. um, So, you know, which brings us today. So, you know, cyber war, that's the attack on the infrastructure. That's where you are intimately involved with today um, at the McCrary Institute. So can you explain um, sort of what you guys are working on there? I know you have a lot of awesome peers. I've had you and some of your peers on other interviews. Right. So what we tend to focus on is cybersecurity and critical infrastructure security, the two 
overlap. They're not exactly the same thing because to protect critical infrastructure is a little more than just cyber. There's also the physical and the human side of it. But the research we're focused on here in the McCrary Institute at Auburn is, can we take the policy decisions being made in Washington? Can we take the research that's being done perhaps at you know the, the student level, grad students, professors that are looking at the cutting edge of new technologies? And where I live in Huntsville, Alabama, where we've got Redstone Arsenal, what are the applications of these things? So it's it's a nice little triangle between policy, research, and application of that research into national security and into the protection of critical infrastructure. So one of the key areas, uh, this is not as technical as you think it would be, is we don't have enough people who want to be computer science majors. Uh, we'll never have enough cybersecurity professionals. I think we all agree with that, who, who are purely into cyber. Well, we do have lots and lots of engineers. We have lots of doctors. You know, We have lots of everything else. So an initiative we're working on in conjunction with the Idaho National Lab with INL is to develop an approach known as cyber-informed engineering. So can we take the engineers who think a little different from everybody? If you're married to an engineer, you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the engineer brain <laughs> operates slightly <laughs> differently. Can we use that approach, uh, the engineering discipline, to help us with the design, operation, and maintenance of large critical infrastructure systems? So we want to teach future mechanical engineers, civil engineers, industrial engineers, chemical engineers, not to make them cybersecurity experts, but to make them understand through the lens of the engineering that they're learning how to use those principles to protect their infrastructure from cyber threats and vulnerabilities, or in fact, how to even build the thing so it's not quite as vulnerable. You're very familiar with the OT world, operational technology. Oh, yes. As that grows and grows and becomes more and more the part of what we're doing, that physical cyber boundary is less well-defined as it used to be. That's where we're focusing. And that goes right to what you're talking about, the difference between information warfare and cyber warfare <clears throat> is that the, yeah, there's still information in there, but we're really more looking at perhaps people trying to do harm to the computers and the control systems Yep. of our infrastructure versus the knowledge that a human is trading back and forth. That that knowledge hacking or information warfare, that that's being played out in spades on social media. Uh, you don't you don't need a computer science degree to to generate a fake account on social media page and start spewing information that your followers all want to believe. That's information warfare. Yeah. Almost at its best, right? But you do need to have a little bit of a technical understanding if you want to break into a water supply system and, and cause the chlorine levels to go up or right. break into a railroad network and cause the trains to take the wrong tracks. There's a little more of a technical knowledge that's required there. And that's what we're focusing in on is that that intersection of the physical world and the cyber world and the protective mechanisms that can be developed to, to, to keep ourselves safe. Yeah, it reminds me of when I ran the SANS analyst program and one of our instructors at SANS wrote a white paper about dairy refrigerators connected to the internet and how they were unprotected and how easy it would be to just turn off the power for 12 hours, let everything spoil, turn it back on, and the dairy operators would be none the wiser and still sell the you know, tainted goods on the market. And I remember when we started, there were like, I don't know, 1500 that he was able to identify through IP addresses. And by the time the 
the white paper was finished, we had to update that number to like 3,500 now connected to the internet. And it just seemed unstoppable, you know, like why would these devices be connected to the internet? But we get it now, you know, I want my iPhone to reach out to test a system. I don't want to have to physically be there, you know, so things are getting more connected and easier to get to, right? Well, and we're similar since we talked about the 90s a little while ago, similar to when the Microsoft operating systems became network aware. When we went from Windows for work groups to Windows 95, and we could now directly connect to the internet, there was a ton of insecurity. We could open up file shares. We didn't have firewalls, a computer in your house. You know, you could share your C drive to the world. <laughs> we, we pause today and say, we did what? Right. But that was normal 25 years ago. Right. And I think that's what we're going through right now with the operational technology world. There, there is an awareness that there's a problem, but the connecting it to the world part of it is we, we, we now understand you shouldn't do that. But a lot of vendors want to be able to remotely maintain their equipment. Yeah, They want to have, rather than physically driving to the site, there's a cost savings and, and a greater efficiency. And I, I fully get that. Mm -hmm. But it's a trade-off. If I want to be able to remotely connect to that refrigerator or remotely connect to a pump or a valve or some system, an adversary could use that same path if we're not careful. This was part of the undoing of the Ukrainians. If you remember the December 2015 attacks in Ukraine, now this is, you know, predates that the current problem that, that Ukraine and Russia are, are dealing with. But in um, Kiev, right after Christmas, December of 15, a bunch of their substations went down. And it turned out it was uh, about six months prior to that, there had been a phishing campaign. They were able to collect usernames and passwords, you know, login credentials, essentially on the enterprise side. And the attackers took a guess and said, you know, why don't I try and replay that same username and password over on the control side and doggone if it didn't work. Wow. You know, we would call that a rookie mistake today, but but they didn't really think about why would somebody attack my power system? Well, we know today, you know, why that happens. And yep. so there's been a lot of lessons. In that case, the power was restored within a few hours because it was there, there was a manual override. They could turn the circuit breakers back on, you know, they could restore power. But imagine something like that happening in a hospital or, you know, with a blood supply system or something that's a lot more critical that you do the damage, similar to what you're talking about in dairy, where I could mess with the refrigeration. But but if I do one step further in your dairy example, turn off the refrigeration, but cause the control system to keep telling the humans that all is well. Yes. So the little monitoring device stays green. The little lines are all at, at you know, minus 20 degrees, wherever they're supposed to be set. But the reality is it's different. Yeah. I mean, that's that's no different than many of these movies we see where the hackers get in and they change the video on a camera so it, it shows nothing's happening when, in fact, they're walking in front of the camera. <laughs> so you have reality and then you have the virtual reality that's being fed to the human overlords and you're just changing that picture that they see. So they think everything is well when, in fact, chaos is ensuing down in the real world. You know what else I love about you as a source for interviews and storytelling and reviewing my book is that um, 
you bridged the gap between cyber war and electronic warfare. Having been in the U.S. Army, um, you know, you helped me point out in my story when I was uh, in the third book referring to the People Liberations Army, um, you know, directing drones at their targets. Um, I was calling it cyber war and you said, no, this would be out of their electronic warfare office. And I did some research and of course you were right. Um, and, um, you know, today we see that playing out with drone wars in Ukraine. Um, we've got the U.S. government rushing to develop the autonomous war machines under the U.S. Replicator Initiative. They want AI-driven autonomous fleets of weapons and drones in just a couple of years so we can beat China at their own game. Um, where do you see this type of you know, combination of elect, you know, electronic warfare, which blends cyber and kinetic warfare together, and AI and autonomous machines. Um, where do you see this going, like in the next five to 10 years? I, I think that there's still a lot of story to be told there. So electronic warfare, EW, predates what we today, what we call cyber warfare. And even think back to World War II, when we learned how radar, or we started building radar, and then we quickly learned that you could also jam the radar, you can introduce false signals into it. That's electronic warfare at its best, where, I, where I'm using RF, okay. that radiated energy, and um, <clears throat> I'm either using it to push out a signal, like a radio wave, or I'm using it to bounce something, like on in radar. If I could change that, if I could deny the signal or if I could <clears throat> overpower the signal so my adversary receives an incorrect signal, that's electronic warfare. Because, again, we're, we're messing around with the electronics of the communication system. Cyber warfare tends to be more on the thinking side where we're going to control the computers versus the actual communications path or the radio waves that are going through the air. But the two intersect each other very nicely because, just as you're saying, if we begin to build AI-powered robotic battlefield presence, and this could play out as like human or, or rather robotic soldiers that look like humans, but you know they're they're Borg-like <laughs> Terminator, oh, yeah. um, you know, types of things that walk the across creator, the Creator, the movie I just saw, the Creator, for example. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they would certainly have a brain, quote unquote, inside of them that. If they're connected back to some source, I could hack that potentially. But on the EW side, I could get in the middle of those electronic transmissions, those, those radio frequency transmissions, and perhaps either alter them or deny them or do something that's an EW twist to it. Same thing plays out on the Navy side. The Navy's working to create drone ships, uh, little small boats all the way up to full-size uh, boats with big, large guns on them. Now, we're Force, seeing those in Ukraine already where they're going after the Russian naval fleet, right? That's correct, yeah. So a lot of this <clears throat> came out of, you remember in Somalia when they had the pirate problem where they, the pirates would go after boats and, and right off of Somalia? Commercial vehicles and mm, Commercial vehicles, vehicles right. Yep. Um, so one of the projects the Navy was developing was, okay, could I build a, you know, a couple of hundred little small drone boats that are you know about the size of maybe a little ski boat or something, they could go swarm the smugglers or swarm the pirates, not putting any U.S. soldiers in harm's way, but let let the robots do it. Yeah. Very interesting concept. 
And of course, you see with drones that the flying drones that the Air Force uses and others were, you know, that that type of thinking goes back to the 90s easily when we, we started first seeing that the first drone aircraft. So this is all here. It's not something, you know, future. It's um, right. I think the the future is already being seen with these little robotic dogs that you see coming out of Boston Scientific and other places. Imagine thousands of those things on a battlefield. You know, chasing the enemy with laser right. eyes and and sharpened teeth and all that stuff is happening in my last book of my yeah, thriller. Yeah, they're not afraid yeah. of guns and things. They're just robots that are out to chase the bad guys. Right, and and also they're thinking about putting those on the streets to patrol, like as a supplement to police forces. And again, if when they go autonomous, what does that actually mean? Because I did not have. The only autonomous uh, operating machines I had in my cyber thriller series was in book three at a Russian work camp with a bunch of uh, canine bots. And but for the most part, I had human operators telling the drones where to fire and where to fly and things like that. Autonomous. What does that mean, actually? Yeah, this brings a whole new dimension. And because do you remember Isaac Asimov's? rules for robots you know one oh of them yeah is, oh yeah i read that i'll not kill your though. creator <laughs> yeah that one uh-huh yeah well this is this is a, a bit of a conundrum if and there's two angles to this one is if i'm writing code that can write new code in other words yep. it can adapt right it, yep. it can it can create because it's designed to create um in the defense department world right now we have to certify code well before we put something out on a on a on a platform flying driving whatever it's got to be certified and if we're going to do an update to it we got to certify that update so it's got to be accredited what happens if that code is allowed to self write new code how do we certify that how do we know that what it has designed on its own is going to stay within the boundaries of what the original specifications were for that platform and even worse and this is where you're going which is kind of the second angle what if it decides on its own that the instructions of its master cause it to fail? Therefore, I need to change the master. I need to change my creator. You can see where that can take oh, us, yeah. right? That, goes, my, that goes to my, the Terminator. Exactly. My creator is not allowing me to do what I what I think needs to be done in order to win the fight. That We're not there yet. That's still science fiction, but we have seen it in some prototyping and some simulations. There was a news story several weeks ago that the Air Force quickly uh, tried to put back in the bag with an Air Force colonel talking about a simulation where a bunch of their drones went wrong and came back mm -hmm. and started attacking the people who were trying to fly them because they felt they were giving incorrect information or whatever the details were. But it was all in a simulation. It wasn't a real thing. Right. But the fact that the simulation could come up with that is sort of unnerving. And it it does tell us as we get more into the AI world that cybersecurity for AI is a little different animal than cybersecurity for your cell phone or for your laptop or even yeah. for the ATM machine or the control system on a dam. This is yeah. yet another wave of technology. We're going to have to use old words and old thinking to try and explain a new technology until we can come up with new words, new phrases, new thinking and maybe it's, you know, we go from information warfare to cyber warfare to 
what's next? Drone warfare? I don't whatever whatever word we come Wind up. Wind is next. calling. Wind Schwarta is calling it Meta War, and that's what we're Meta War. There we go. Yeah, he time. has an excellent talk on that. It's okay. fascinating what what he's thinking about what's coming next with the metaverse and how we're going to um, have conflict there as well. Yep. Yeah. Well, we have about four minutes left, and what I was hoping is. How can we turn this around to the private sector, which is actually building some of these uh, autonomous uh, war fighting machines and is also pretty much running the infrastructure systems that the government and the rest of us rely on? Um, do you have a couple of key words for, of advice? I know that training the engineers has already been discussed, that what you guys are doing through Macquarie Institute for the infrastructure uh, teams. Um, but what are some, like, you know, two or three major takeaways that they can go look at and make sure they're doing things right now instead of, you know, 10 years in the future when we're already hosed. Right. So if I'm a business creating things, whether it's for the private sector or whether I'm a contractor for the government, I'm usually on a timeline, a schedule. And this is awkward because I have to deliver by a certain date. Mm-hmm. Most of these systems are not bound by the same security constraints as, say, a vehicle or a baby buggy or a toy, you know, you know how we have all the consumer protection mechanisms and fire codes and safety codes mm-hmm. that's coming. You know, we've been resisting it for a lot, a lot of years, but I think we're going to at some point begin to see con- consumer protection or something similar begin to emerge in cyberspace. Okay. And I would, I would advise anybody building these things to, 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 keenly be aware of that. And in fact, try and lead the way. What yeah. A question that keeps coming up is, how do I measure security? So if I have a requirement to make something secure, is there a way, and this is an engineer mind, remember I was telling you how engineers think yeah. differently? Engineers like to measure things. They like a bit of certainty so, and, and predictability. How do I do that with security? What what are the metrics? So if I say my device is more secure than my competitor's device, mm-hmm. what am I measuring? Because I'm certainly not measuring pounds or square inches or you know things like that in the physical world. And and that's a, an interesting question, and it's a challenge yeah. to two industries. Can you make things more secure, and then can you prove it through math or science or some way of measuring? So an engineer can then say, okay, I can. I can understand why this is more secure. I can understand how I could possibly make it more secure using engineering techniques and technologies. That's that's where we need to go. That's okay. how we're going to protect critical infrastructure. That's how we're going to support the DoD. I'm this. We're going to continue to learn and evolve, but we do need to get more into the science. Let me give you one last example. Back in the 1700s, steam was understood. Steam engines began to emerge, but those early steam engines tended to blow up and they would kill people. <laughs> and it really wasn't until the middle 1800s before we began to have the science of steam and we understood how it actually worked at a chemical level, what caused water to transition to vapor, to steam and so forth. And the pressure. So, pressures, right. And so 100 years of steam technology before we really got the science right. And now we could build boilers and do all the good things knowing scientifically how to make sure they don't blow up. So that's the that's the road we have to go down with cybersecurity. We got to figure out how to make these things secure, just like a steam system, make it safe. But we need some science. And that's the challenge to anybody in academia, anybody in industry, anybody in government. 
is how do we measure and scientifically get ourselves more secure? Thanks, Mark. It was so much fun going down memory lane with you. And it doesn't seem like things are getting better. It seems like technology is making everybody's lives easier, but it's also making cyber safety, as you call it, more um, complicated. So let's hope that the engineering level and other levels take your advice. And in the meantime, I want to thank our audience for attending. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Cybeat Podcast with Deb Radcliffe, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.